Well, this morning, uh, the text that we are going to be in is uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Give you a minute to turn there, about halfway or so through the Bible. Um, but to give a little bit of context before we get into the, uh, the passage here, This was written at a time when, if you, if you know your, your Old Testament history, the, the kingdom of Israel had been divided. Uh, the kingdom eventually split after King David and King Solomon after him. The, the kingdom was split. Uh, eventually, both, the, both of the kingdoms, the north and the south, Israel and Judah, were both eventually judged and overthrown, and the people were sent into exile. Um, and this is at a time when the exile is coming, the judgment is coming, uh, in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, we see the word of the Lord coming to Isaiah. Um, he, he calls the nations to repentance. Um, he, he gives them a warning of their, of their coming judgment if they don't repent. And then in chapter 6, it deals with this, uh, this kind of unique and, and strange vision that Isaiah is given by the Lord. Um, well, I will go ahead and read. I'll be, I'm reading out of the ESV. I don't know what you guys normally read out of here, but uh, Isaiah 6, starting in chapter 1, says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And this chapter continues with, with several more verses that we don't get into, but really Isaiah is given a, a, a frankly discouraging message uh, that the people will not believe. The people will reject the message that he's given. Um, but we're going we're gonna to mainly spend uh, our time this morning here on the first, uh, the first eight verses here that we just read. Well, Father, I pray that... Uh, Lord, just that your word would be effective. Um, Lord, I pray that you would guard my tongue from, from error, that you would uh, just apply your word to your people. Uh, Father, I pray that this whole service, that this word would uh, just bring you glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're given kind of a strange picture here. We're given a, a very heavenly picture. I, I don't want us to be uh, overly woodenly literal in our, in our understanding of what this is. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more as we go on. Um, but, but to give some background here, uh, again, this was written about 740 AD. Um, so quite some time ago, um, uh, you know, almost 800 years before Christ walked the earth. Um, and, and this deals with, uh, it says, this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, Uzziah, if you're familiar with him, was really one of the few good kings of Judah after David. Um, after David and, and Solomon, there were not a lot of good kings, and that, that was really one of the reasons for uh, the downfall of, of Israel and, and Judah. Um, but Uzziah was one who was coronated when he was only 16. He ruled for 42 years, um, and, and he was one of the better kings. Uh, he restored Judah to a quite powerful nation, um, probably more powerful than it had been since the time of, of David and Solomon. Um, like I said, he, he was a pretty good king. Overall, his, his kingship was, was marked by good things, but it ended very poorly. Um, it, it did not end well uh, for him. I'm, I'm going to read briefly here from uh, 2 Chronicles 26. This is talking about uh, King Uzziah here. It says, uh, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple to burn 
incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, but when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed out to him quickly, and he himself hurried out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So essentially here, the king had grown prideful, he'd grown arrogant, and he ended up entering the temple of the Lord and doing something that he was not allowed to do, doing something that only God permitted the priests to do. So to kind of set the stage of the, the scene we have here, it's talking about in the year that King Uzziah died, um, this good king uh, had a reign that had declined. Things had gotten worse. And then at the beginning of this chapter, this is the year that the king had died. So things kind of went from bad to worse. Uh, things are not looking up. We think of um, the unrest and uncertainty that can come with our own elections here, our political elections, whether it's presidential or, or governor or whatever. Um, but here, a nice thing is we have things like term limits here today, right? Uh, so if the, if the person you don't like gets elected, you know, they probably only have four or eight-year uh, crack at things <laughs> to make things worse. But it, it wasn't so for the king. Uh, again, Uzziah reigned for 42 years. Think of, um, you know, all the damage that the wrong person in office could do, you know, over a 42-year-long career. So there was no doubt unrest and uncertainty uh, in this scene here. So the king has died, but what Isaiah sees here is he sees a vision of the better king, the true king, high and lifted up, exalted, honored. He sees a vision of God. Um, the, uh, the, the word here for God, we see capital L with a lowercase o-r-d. Uh, the, the word there in Hebrew is Adonai, meaning the sovereign one. This is a title for God. It's not a specific name of God. It's the title for God, but the, the sovereign one. So he sees the sovereign one. So a king can also be referred to as a sovereign. Uh, the, the sovereign had died, but Isaiah, in this vision, sees the true sovereign. There was a, a crisis of sovereignty, a crisis of rulership, and Isaiah here sees a vision of the true sovereign over the nation. He sees God in his holy temple. Still in verse 1 here, we see the, uh, the train of his robe filling the temple. Uh, the idea of a, of a train was sort of a, um, a symbol of power. In the ancient world, the, the bigger the train, the more important the king. We, we think of, uh, we're probably familiar with royal weddings here uh, and things like that, where, you know, a, a princess or a queen or something's going to be married and she has this, you know, incredibly long, um, long train. It's, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a status symbol. But uh, Isaiah here sees the train of his robe is so big, it's filling this, this, entire, uh, this entire scene here. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. So seraphim, this is, uh, this is the only place in Scripture that mentions this type of creature, the seraphim. Um, and this is obviously some sort of a, a heavenly being, uh, but it's an interesting word. We, we tend to think of seraphim as a, as a type of angel, um, but the, the word seraph here, uh, Hebrew is a funny language, uh, the word seraph can mean either to burn or serpent, uh, Kind of interesting there. Sometimes if you, if you look for pictures of a seraphim, um, you see pictures of like a winged snake or something sometimes. Uh, but this is something that's used as the idea is kind of a throne guardian. Uh, this is common in um, sort of a, in extra biblical uh, write, you know, Hebrew writings and things like that and also in other Mesopotamian, uh, Mesopotamian thought. The idea of seraphim is, is some kind of a throne guardian. Um, but they have here... Very interestingly, six, six wings. Uh, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Again here, this is kind of what I want you to meet, what I mean when I say I don't want to be overly, uh, woodenly literal in the way that we think about this. Think about the meaning more than, more than trying to picture it. Uh, so when God creates things, 
He creates things perfectly suited for their environment, right? He creates uh, birds with, with hollow bones so that they can fly. He creates fish with gills so that they can breathe underwater. God creates things that are suited to the environment that he places them in. And so what, what kind of environment was, were, were these placed in? These, these seraphim here are in the immediate presence of God. And I, I think this is evident. You know, we ask, you know, why? Why were they created this way? Why do they have these different wings? Um, and, and I think the answer really is, is just looking at what they said here. Uh, one to the other said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we see this this theme of holiness, and uh, it, it's very interesting here. This is uh, holiness, we know, is, is an attribute of God, but here we see, we see it repeated three times. Not holy, not holy, holy, but holy, 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 three times. And in the Hebrew language, repetition is the way of denoting emphasis. So think of uh, when Jesus would say something especially important, he'd say, you know, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, He's, he's repeating himself for emphasis. Repeating something three times was like the, the Hebrew equivalent to a superlative uh, form. It's the, the most emphasis he can put on something. So we see here, God is holy, holy, holy. This is the emphasis. This is what the author of this text want us, wants us to focus in on when we hear this, is the superlative uh, holiness of God. Uh, I'm convinced that, that holiness is possibly the most essential yet most neglected attribute of God, at least in our, our time today. And I'll give you reasons to support this uh, a little bit later on in the sermon. But again, superlative holiness here, three times holy. Think about it. Scripture never tells us that God is love, 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 or that God is forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. The only attribute of God that is ever repeated like this for emphasis is his holiness, most of us were asked to describe God, how many of us would, you know, what comes first to mind would be that God is holy. Uh, we, we live in an age of, of subjectivity where, you know, most people believe in God, right, in some kind of nebulous manner, but we, we like to define God in a way that is, that is most palatable to our, to our fallen senses, um, right? We, we live in an age of consumerism where we're used to being catered to, we're used to getting to, to just kind of pick the, the things that we want. We, we can tend to like just sort of a buffet style of Christianity. We like this and this, but, but not so much this over here. Uh, we, we can think about church in the same way. We, you know, think of shopping around for a church, you know, finding one that, that gives us the most things that we want. Uh, but, but we like to do that, uh, if we're honest, about God, too. We like to really emphasize some of God's attributes that appeal to us, and, uh, and it's just within our fallen tendency to ignore the attributes of God that, that we don't like as much, or maybe we don't relate to as much. And, and as Christians, we, we must not fall into this temptation. We must affirm and proclaim God as he has revealed himself to be. God is holy, and that is fundamentally who God is. So what does it mean then? What does it mean that God is holy? Uh, holiness is one of those words that I think just human thought really struggles to really define this fully, right? So it's, words just come up short, right? It's kind of like describing the ocean as big, right? The ocean is big, but a, a dog can be big, a truck can be big. Uh, but when you're talking about the ocean, there's, just, there's not really words that describe it. So it is with God's holiness. Saying that God is holy is uh, kind of akin to saying that God is God, um, but I'm going to give a couple different definitions here, and, and hopefully through the use of several definitions and examples and things like that, I, uh, I pray that we would come to a deeper understanding of, of, of what it means by holiness. But some of the different definitions that are out there are uh, sacred, unstained by sin, exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. Pretty good definition. Um, a cut above is, is kind of a literal definition. Um, I, I, I like to think of this in terms of like, uh, like cuts of steak, right? So like a ribeye steak is a cut above a, a round steak, right? If you know your, if you know your, your cuts there. Or uh, we could think of uh, a fabrics or something like that. 
uh, where some fabrics are, um, you know, a cut above. It's on another, another level. This, this is kind of a, a more literal definition of, of what holy is. Uh, another definition is other or set apart. We think of uh, the word holiday, a day that's set apart for something, a day that's cons- consecrated for something, holiday, holy day. Uh, but again, these definitions come up short. Um, and this is just part of the inadequacy of human thought. Uh, but again, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back around to this um, and hopefully uh, supplement our definition of, of holiness some here. But uh, to, to get back to the question of the seraphim here, so why do they have these wings? Why do they have wings over their faces and feet? Because even they who are not stained with human sin as we are still need something to shield themselves from the glorious presence of God. Their faces are covered from God because of God's radiant holiness. Even these, the seraphim, these, again, seraph to burn, even these burning ones cannot withstand the burning glory of the holiness of God. And similarly, their, their feet are covered because the ground around them is, is made holy ground by the presence of God. So think back to like Moses at the burning bush. Um, God's presence made the ground holy. He was told, take off your sandals. The ground you're standing on is, is holy ground. I, I think that that is why uh, their, the, the feet of these creatures was, was covered by wings. Again, these seraphim are created perfectly to suit the environment that God has designed for them. Verse 4 here, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Uh, all of this really denotes the, the immediate presence of God. Um, specifically, the smoke. We, we see this smoke as kind of a theme throughout uh, the whole Bible of, of the presence of God. Think of uh, like in Exodus 19 when Moses goes up to Sinai to meet God, and the smoke covers the mountain, indicating God's immediate presence is there. First uh, Kings chapter 8, Solomon finishes building the temple and then he dedicates it to God and the cloud of God's glory fills it. Um, fast forwarding to the, the end of redemptive history, Revelation 15, we also see the end time temple being filled with smoke from the glory and power of God. And, and this also corresponds with God's wrath being poured, poured out, if you're familiar with, uh, with that portion of scripture. Uh, the idea of smoke is something that is always associated with God's holy presence and at times also with his, his wrath and justice. It's not just some kind of you know, made-up symbol. It's, this is intentionally here. And this is what leads to Isaiah's response in verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, so woe is me. This is... Kind of unusual language for us today. Today, uh, some translations will say, "I am undone," but this is this is Isaiah using the strongest language he can use to declare his own destruction, his own demise. It's him essentially calling down curses upon himself. He's calling doom upon himself, saying, "I am I am undone. I am disintegrated." Um, he saw something that terrified him and shook him and rattled him down to his core. He saw presence of God. A man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. Um, it's interesting because Isaiah, Isaiah, humanly speaking, was a very righteous and upright man. Uh, compared to his neighbors, he, he was probably a great guy. There's, there's nothing in Scripture that, that would lead us to believe that Isaiah is uh, any kind of an unusually a vile person. He's not an abuser or an idolater or a pornographer, but when he catches a glimpse of, of God's glory, he becomes instantly aware of how sinful and depraved he really was. In other words, when he saw God for who God is, it caused him to see himself for who he is. And this is just an incredibly uh, powerful paradigm-shifting moment. It's interesting that his... Uh, his lips are what he's, what he's drawn to. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. It's, it's interesting to me that he, that he focused on the lips. Uh, he doesn't say I'm a man of unclean hands or, or unclean thoughts. Um, it's, it's lips. I believe this is because throughout Scripture, we see that really lips or the mouth is an indicator of the condition of the heart. If you want to know what state someone's heart is in, just listen to how they talk. 
Uh, and we see throughout the Old and New Testament, specifically in the Proverbs and the teaching of Christ, we see uh, just this, this truth that the mouth is an indicator of what's in your heart, right? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if, if you ultimately, if you have a dirty mouth, the problem isn't just with your mouth, it's a problem of your heart. It's an indicator. So upon seeing God's holy glory, he is, he is undone, he is rattled, he's calling curses down upon himself. And he tells us why. He says, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, it's because he saw the holy God that he became aware of how serious his sin was, how sinful he really was. And it's not until we share this awareness that that we really begin to see uh, the need and the beauty of the gospel. Uh, But this, this brings us to verse six here. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So again, this scene is in, is in God's temple. And this, this seraphim, this, this burning creation, this heavenly creation of God takes a coal from an altar and touches it to what Isaiah has just declared as the thing that's unclean. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and then the seraphim comes and takes this coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And I think it's interesting that the seraphim uses tongs to do it. So again, even this creature that's designed for this habitat, this burning one, is still has to use tongs to, to touch this. It's so, it's so hot and burning that even this, this heavenly being must use these tongs. But by placing... Uh, this burning coal on Isaiah's mouth, somehow Isaiah's guilt and, and sin is taken away. And through the enduring, burning pain of this, this experience, uh, with this coal, Isaiah's sin is dealt with. And Isaiah then responds in verse 8. He says, here I am, send me. And then God again proceeds to tell Isaiah this incredibly discouraging message uh, that, that really Isaiah is going to be uh, an unsuccessful messenger. He's going to be someone who, who goes and uh, is, is persecuted and, and people don't listen to him. That's the message that he gets. Uh, well, I said earlier that we will circle back around to holiness a little bit, why it's so important, and to give maybe some examples of, uh, to, to supplement <clears throat> our understanding here um, and why it, is, why it is so pivotal. Uh, so, so the first reason is that holiness is foundational to a right view of God's character. Uh, So holiness is a very big deal to God, and we can see this in a number of places throughout Scripture. Uh, So think, um, at at Grace, uh, my home church, we do uh, catechism questions with the kids. And uh, some time ago, we we went through the Lord's Prayer, and we asked, you know, what are the different petitions of the Lord's Prayer? Um, You know, we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, you know, etc. But the first petition there is, hallowed be your name. That's the first thing that we are to pray for as, as Christians, the way that Christ told us to pray. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. That's the first, the first thing that we are given. We pray that God's name would be made holy, that God's name would be honored. Old Testament example, uh, the fourth commandment. Fourth commandment is, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we understand that with, uh, with commandments, especially the Ten Commandments, there's, there's always a positive and a negative side, right? So when God says don't murder, you know, the, the flip side of that is you need to preserve life, right? You need to uh, honor your neighbor, protect your neighbor, you know, work, work for the well-being and the life and the good of things. So in the same way, when God says don't take my name in vain, what's the, what's the flip side? The flip side is honor my name, make holy my name. Again, this is, uh, holiness is also the only attribute or the only characteristic of God that has ever given this superlative emphasis, that's ever given the three times, holy, holy, holy. Uh, you know, Scripture describes God to us in a number of ways. It says, uh, you know, for example, God is light, and in him though there is no darkness, but it doesn't say that God is light, light, light. Uh, we're told that God is merciful and faithful, but, but again, it's never given this superlative emphasis, this three times repetition. So I'm going to argue from that that holiness really should be our starting point when we begin to think about who God is. God is holy. 
beyond all other things. And that's not to say that we neglect God's other attributes. That's just to say that we understand God's other attributes in light of God's holiness. So when we look at God as love, certainly God is love. Scripture tells us that. But it's a holy love. It's a, it's a love that is defined and informed by God's holiness. In the same way, God is a just God, but he's a holy just God. His, his justice is informed by his holiness. He's a merciful God, but again, his mercy is defined by and influenced by his holiness. It's a holy mercy. Second thing there is uh, that holiness is foundation, foundational to a right view of sin and wrath. Our tendency typically is to minimize and, and justify our own sin, um, right? It, it's easy to kind of, kind of write off our sin as if, it's, if it, as if it's not really a big deal, right? Nobody's perfect, we could say, or, you know, eh, we're, we're trying to get better. Or, uh, self-comparison is a, is a common one. You know, I'm not as bad as this other, this other person here. And, and none of that, of course, is new. Jesus dealt with that in his own time. You know, he, he said to remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck in your brother's eye. So we're prone to self-comparison and to, to try and justify ourselves. But um, sin, sin is a much bigger deal than that. R.C. Sproul once defined sin. He said that sin is an act. He says that every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God and his sovereign authority. So every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. So again, we, we live in an age of, of facades, of, of social media, things like that, where we, we try to just put our best face on. We try to, you know, kind of create this, uh, this image of ourselves as being, you know, these wonderful people, and we try to hide our, hide our worst um, we try to show our best and, and hide our worst. Hey, look at this great thing I did. I'm an awesome person. Um, and we, we tell ourselves things like that, but we ultimately can't hide the truth from a holy God. And we see that with, with Isaiah. Again, Isaiah is a, is a pretty righteous guy, humanly speaking, but he is completely undone, completely aware of his own sin as soon as he catches a glimpse of God's holiness. Another thing that's important to note on sin is that we need to understand that sin is first and foremost against God and only secondarily against ourselves uh, or, or against others. So it, it doesn't take a, a Christian person or a, someone who is rooted in Scripture to see why uh, even the events of, of this last week in the news, why this is such a grievous sin we can look at, at humans, you know, unnecessary human suffering, and even as you know, secular people can look around and say, that's evil, that's awful, that's terrible. Um, but again, we need to understand that, that sin, although it, do, it is harmful to our neighbor and, and to ourselves, sin is, again, ultimately, primarily something that's against God. And, and the reason of this goes back to our design. When God created man and woman, he created man and woman as image bearers of him. We are to be little mirrors of God's moral character. When we behave, however we behave, we are saying to the created order, God is like this. That's part of what it means to be an image bearer of God. So every sin is firstly a lie about who God is. It's a, it's a slandering of God's character. If, we're, if we are lying, essentially what we are saying to the created order is God is like this. God is untrue. God is a liar. That, that's what we are saying effectively when we lie. If we, if we lust or if we commit adultery or something like that, what we are saying to the, the created order is that God is unfaithful. All sin is, is primarily against God. It's against God before it's against our neighbor, before it's against ourselves. When we see God's holiness for what it is, we can't hide or, or minimize the seriousness of sin. All sin, is, as Sproul said, is, is treason against the sovereign creator of the universe. There's a quote that I want to put on the screen here. It's, I want to put it on the screen just because it's, uh, it's especially kind of thick and deep. This is a quote from uh, John Calvin, the, the great reformer. Um, but he said on this topic, he says this, Since nothing appears within us or around us, that is not tainted with very great impurity, so long as we keep our mind within the confines of human pollution, 
Anything which is in some degree less defiled delights us as if it were the most pure, just as to an eye to which nothing but black had been previously presented deems an object of whitish or even brownish hue to be perfectly white. So what he's saying there is as long as we we keep our minds looking at the earthly things, looking at everything that's polluted by sin, we can easily be pretty impressed with ourselves. Uh, We think we're doing a pretty good job. But again, one glimpse of God, and that completely shatters that that facade. Uh, In in his day, in in Calvin's day, several centuries ago, and and still in our own, probably to a lesser degree now, but there there was a big deal made about uh, distinguishing between different types of sin. Uh, the, The argument... Uh, that, that Rome was saying was that, well, really, there's, there's two types of sin. There's venial sin and there's mortal sin. Mortal sin's the really bad stuff, you know, killing people and, uh, or, you know, murder and adultery and, and things like that. These are the really serious sins. Um, but then there's venial sins. Venial sins, you know, maybe you, maybe you told a lie or had an impure thought or, or something like that. Uh, it's not really all that big of a deal. That can be easily dealt with. Just, uh, you know, say some Hail Marys, maybe give some alms to the poor, and that, and that sin is dealt with. Um, You know, as long as you didn't commit any of those mortal sins. But to that, Calvin again said, no, he said, all sin is mortal because it's rebellion against the will of God. Every act of rebellion is a big deal. We're told right from the beginning of Scripture, the wages of sin is death. Death is the consequence for sin. That's given at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 2. So if God were purely and only just... He would give us the death penalty. He would give it to everyone without exception the moment that we sin. Common view of, of God today, it seems especially, is to see uh, God the Father in the Old Testament as being just sort of angry and wrathful, and then we see the Son, Christ, in the New Testament come, and, and he sort of reverses that. You know, Jesus is all about love, grace, and mercy. The Father's all about, you know, anger and wrath and things like that. That's we can tend to think of things uh, that way, um, and I guess that's not an incredibly new thought. I, uh, recently, I, I just finished up actually leading a, a group through um, uh, a study of ancient church history. We looked at the first five centuries uh, of the Christian church, but one of, the, uh, one of the people there that we spent time on was uh, someone named Marcion. Maybe you're, you're familiar with the term Marcionism. Um, Marcion was an early teacher within the church who was so appalled by some of the actions of God in the Old Testament that he actually went to the extreme and said, well, there, there's two different gods. There's a God of the Old Testament that's evil, and then there's a God of the New Testament that's good. Um, he, he went to this degree and, and, of course, was eventually condemned as a heretic, and, you know, the church pretty universally reached out and said, no, that's, that's not right, and again, for, for a number of reasons. Um, most of us today probably aren't tempted to go that far, but if we're going to be honest, sometimes when we, when we read through the Old Testament, sometimes uh, we're maybe a little embarrassed by some of God's actions. Some of the things that God does sometimes seems uh, maybe a little harsh or, or a little extreme. Um, I'm going to give two examples here. Uh, the first one is Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. You may be familiar with this one. I'll just read the first couple verses of, of Leviticus 10 here. But this is an example of, of God's swift justice. It says this, uh, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so this is back in the time of Moses, uh, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Right? So doesn't this seem maybe a little extreme? Uh, These guys just performed a ritual wrong, and God put them to death for it. The, the literal uh, text there says that um, fire came out from the face of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So again, we, we can tend to think of this as, eh, they didn't, they didn't really do anything that wrong, uh, but, but God put them to death for it. But let's think about this for a second. These men were, they were God's priests. They were sanctified men. They were set apart for the purpose of offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They were tasked with this high privilege of experiencing God in a unique way, and they used it to blaspheme his name. They did something explicitly contrary to what he commanded them to do. I'd argue that if we think that God's act of justice here, it's 
is too extreme. It's because we have too low of a view of God's holiness. We don't take sin seriously enough. If God were to have dealt with Nadab and Abihu purely justly, I I would argue that God would have put them to death long before the specific sin. They no doubt had a a life of uh, living in sin prior to this. But it was at that time that God decided to withhold his mercy and deal with them justly. And if you continue reading this passage in in Leviticus 10, you'll see that uh, Moses, their uncle, and Aaron, their father, came to realize this. God is is just. Second example I want to give of uh, God's swift justice is with Uzzah. Not not Uzziah, the king that we read about in Isaiah, but uh, Uzzah. Uh, Uzzah lived at the time of uh, the time when David was king, and uh, to give a little background here, if you'll remember, Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred object that God had given them, um, and Israel had recovered this. Uh, I believe it was it had fallen into the hand of the Philistines, and they'd um, they'd recovered the Ark, and they were then working on bringing it back into the temple. And uh, I'll read from Second Samuel chapter six here. It says, "When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon." Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So again, this can seem a little bit harsh. Uh, the, The ox stumbled, the ark of the covenant looked like it was about to fall to the ground, Uzzah puts out his hand to stop the ark, and God strikes him dead. Um, but th- if we really dig into this, this scene here, there, there's a number of things that are, that are wrong here. Um, the, the first thing is that God had commanded the ark to be transported in a specific way, and it was not by ox cart. Uh, if you're familiar with it, the, the, the ark had these rings on it, and there were essentially poles that would, that would go through the ark, and it would be carried by hand. There's, uh, effectively, there's pallbearers. That would, uh, that would carry this. So it was always to be transported in this way, by hand. Um, and there was a specific group of, of Israelites, it was actually a specific group of Levites called the Kohathites, uh, that were the people whose job it was to care for the furniture that was inside the temple, including the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, these Kohathites were given specific, explicit instructions how to care for these objects that God had sanctified. Um, and it seems likely that Uzziah was probably one of these Kohathites. It was the job of, of him and of his family to be the transporters of the ark, to be the, the keepers of the ark. And the first rule that he would have known since he was a little boy was, you never touch the ark. So Uzziah's action, or Uzzah's action here, was, was not one just out of instinct or, or one out of ignorance. It wasn't like he didn't, he didn't know better. Uh, rather, it was one out of arrogance. He did know better. Uh, R.C. Sproul, again, uh, said on this, he says, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was that he assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Again, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was that he assumed his hands were less polluted because of the dirt. It was arrogance because dirt does exactly what God created it to do. Dirt has no sin. Dirt doesn't rebel against its maker. Not so with Uzzah. Uzzah did rebel against his maker, and, and in this case, he was met with divine justice. So I'd argue that like Nadab and Abihu, if we think that God dealt too harshly here, it's because we have too low of a view of his holiness. We have too low of a view of the, of the seriousness of sin. God's holiness is foundational to our understanding of, of sin and wrath, which wrath is God's righteous and just response to sin. It's common today to hear the language of, of saved. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to, you know, when, when you meet another, another Christian, sometimes it's common to say, oh, well, you know, when were you saved or, or, or something like that. We, we use this language of saved, but I think it's, um, I think commonly we, we don't think about the seriousness of, of that statement and, and of really of what it is that we are saved from. Um, so, so what are we saved from? We're saved from, from our sin, yes. Uh, we're saved from ourselves. Uh, to some degree, from really our, our sinful nature. Um, to some degree, we're, we're saved from, from Satan. Uh, but ultimately, we're saved from God's just wrath. We're saved from God's justice. We're saved from God's right response to our sin. Next point is God's uh, holiness 
is foundational to a right view of mercy and grace. So mercy is, is kind of an interesting category. Um, we, we have categories of justice and injustice. Mercy is, is kind of in between. Mercy is not an injustice, but it's a temporary withholding of justice. Uh, we serve a merciful God, a long-suffering God, one who, uh, if I may say, usually doesn't immediately give us what we deserve. He's merciful. As sinful creatures, it's, it's easy for us to get comfortable with mercy and to come to expect mercy. And this is exactly what happened with, with Nadab and Abihu and with, with Uzzah. They got used to God's mercy and they came to presume upon it. Similarly, God's, God's grace, God's mercy and grace. God's grace, we could define w- with a number of aspects. We could talk about saving grace or common grace. or there, There's some, you know, theologians will argue different, different types of grace. But ultimately, uh, we can define grace broadly as God's favor on the undeserving. So it's God giving us something that we didn't earn. That's very broadly, that's what grace is. But like mercy... We don't understand what grace is if it's something that we think we deserve or if it's something that we expect. You can't, you can't deserve mercy. You can't deserve grace. If you deserve it, it's no longer grace and mercy. Again, it's, it's just so easy for us, to be, uh, for us to become desensitized to sin and desensitization of sin is, I would argue, produced by a low view of the holiness of God. And then with that, it's kind of the reverse too. It's if we... We, we, we can fix our low view of sin by looking rightly at who God is and the, the holiness of God. And the last point on this here is that holiness is foundational to a right view of the gospel. Simply put, God is holy. We are sinful. God's justice demands that sinners be punished. And it's, it's only with this framework in view that the gospel is good news to us. We desperately need a Savior. We don't just need a little help. We don't need, you know, we, we don't need Jesus to be uh, our friend primarily. Um, you know, again, we don't just need a little help. We need someone to take the wrath of God that we deserve. And we need someone to image God rightly, to live rightly for us. And that someone is, is Christ, our substitute, who came and lived the perfect life that, that we could never live. And he took on the, the wrath of God that is due to us for our sin. But again, this, this gospel, this is only good news when we see God for who God is. It's only good news when we see our sin for what it is, when we understand the depths of the seriousness of our sin. Flip over now to uh, John chapter 12. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of end here in John. I always like to, uh, I, I love how just the, the New Testament perfectly uses the Old Testament, and I, I love that. That's one of my favorite things to do in uh, you know, Bible studies, looking specifically at the New Testament, and then we can kind of flip and look at the Old Testament background. Um, and the New Testament you know, didn't just pop into existence. Um, it's, uh, it, it all has a foundation. It has a backdrop uh, within the Old Testament. And we're looking at John because uh, John, uh, in chapter 12 here, uh, he quotes this passage of, Isaiah here. So we're going to kind of take a look at how, how he sees it here. So where we are in, in John, um, John chapter 12, again, this is, uh, this is really towards the end of the story or the narrative portion of, of the gospel of John. John uh, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the death. Uh, from death. Uh, the, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders were actively coming after Jesus and trying to kill him, and this is really not terribly long before uh, his, his death and resurrection. Um, but in this, we see, you know, really throughout the Gospel of John, the, the more clearly Jesus speaks, the more hostility is raised up against him. And this is sort of the, the peak of it. And it's like, you know, the, the more precise and clear Jesus gets, the more people walk away. Uh, at the beginning, there's, you know, thousands and thousands of people coming to Jesus, and they, they like what he has to offer. But again, as he gets more specific, as his message becomes more clear, the people turn on him, the people disbelieve, the people leave. And, uh, and here in John chapter 12 here, uh, Jesus is explaining this unbelief, or Jesus and John are explaining the unbelief of these people, and they're going to use uh, Isaiah 6 to do it. 
I'm going to start in verse uh, 37 here on the unbelief of the people. And it says, Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah, for again, Isaiah said, and this is where uh, chapter 6 is, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So there's a beautiful message of, of God's sovereignty in there, obviously. Um, we, we see that God is sovereign even over man's unbelief. But, but what I want us to focus on is uh, really is, is verse 41 here. And, and answering the question of who did Isaiah see in chapter 6, in chapter 6 of Isaiah? Um, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, again, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that the, the Lord there, it says, I saw the Lord, Adonai, um, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Lord Adonai, the sovereign one. Uh, in Isaiah 6.6, 6, um, the one who Isaiah sees is the Lord of hosts. Uh, that time you'll notice uh, that there's, it's all caps for Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. The, that's the proper name for God. That's not just a title of God. That's the name of God. That's the name of the covenantal God of the Old Testament. So Isaiah saw the covenantal God of the Old Testament. And then who does John say that Isaiah saw in 1241? He saw him. He saw Jesus. This is, I think, one of the most incredibly powerful apologetics for the deity of Christ, uh, for the connection between Jesus and God the Father. Uh, this passage definitively proves the falsity of, of false religions. It proves the falsity of, of Mormonism, of the faith of the Jehovah's Witnesses, of uh, the Arians, if you're familiar with them from uh, the ancient church, and, and every other human system that denies that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. John says explicitly, Isaiah saw Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. And this is why... Um, if you'll, at Grace, we're, we've been teaching through the book of John for the last two years or so. We'll probably be there for another year, but um, we, uh, we just recently got to the part where Jesus is, uh, is arrested, and, and you're familiar with this scene in the Garden of, of Gethsemane when the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and, and John tells us, when they ask Jesus who he is, he says, I am, and they fall back. They fall to the ground. This group of, of hundreds or, or possibly even thousands of, of soldiers and temple guards and, and all these people, they fall to the ground when Jesus says who he is. He says, ego I me, I am, I am he, I am the one. Why? Because Jesus is holy. Jesus is, again, identifying himself as the great I am, as the, the holy one of Israel, as the Lord of hosts. That is who Jesus is. A couple quick points of application here. First thing is that you can't experience the holiness of Christ without being changed. When Isaiah caught a glimpse of the holiness of God, it caused him to call down curses upon himself. We see similar responses really all throughout Scripture. When, when, when men come in contact with God, they, they're changed profoundly. Uh, we think of, of Job, who, who, who looked at God and then said, behold, I am vile. Job, again, a, a very holy man. But when he catches a glimpse of, of God's holiness and God's glory, behold, I am vile. Uh, what, one pastor that I listened to gave, gave the analogy of, a, uh, of being hit by a semi. He said, you know, well, if I, if I were to show up today and say, hey, sorry, I was a few minutes late. I was, you know, walking across the street and I got hit by a semi going 70 miles an hour. Uh, you wouldn't believe me. Right? You wouldn't believe me because you can't, you can't collide with something of that power and that force and that magnitude and, and it not be obvious that you've been hit by that. Uh, that profoundly changes you. How much more powerful is God, is the glory of God? You can't experience the holiness of Christ without being changed by it also. Next point of application is to take refuge in the one who is seated on the throne. Take our hope 
in Christ. Uh, these can be frightening times we live in. We live just the, the last few years. There's, uh, there's war going on. There's disease. Uh, there's supply shortages. There's uh, economic distress. There's, there's all kinds of things that we could focus on and that we could worry about and um, things that can cause us fear and, and anxiety and, and discouragement. But the remedy is to look to the one who is seated on the throne. Is your hope in Christ. We look to the true sovereign. We look to the one who holds it all in his hands. And this is, this is the foundation of, of the peace in the midst of our trials, is our looking to Christ. Look to Christ on the throne. Place your hope in Christ. Final point there is the, the response that we have as believers is the same response that, uh, that Isaiah gave. When he had his sin atoned for, he said, Here I am, send me. Isaiah, again, Isaiah was not someone called to proclaim a message of ease and luxury. His message was not about living your best life or, uh, you know, turn to Jesus and he'll help you in your struggles. He'll get you through the, the tough times. And not that that's a, that's a false message, but again, it wasn't a message of trust in God and he'll give you a fulfilling life. It wasn't these, these common gospel messages that we can tend to hear today. His message and our message was was much, much deeper than that. Our message today must be much deeper than just the surface level of, you know, Jesus as your buddy who will help you through something difficult. Our message is one that's rooted in the holiness of God. It's a message that makes much of human sin. It's a message that makes much of the wrath of God. It makes much of, much of human sin. But as much as we make of things, of these things, we make more of our Savior. We make much of Christ, who is the focal point of all of redemptive history. Christ, who took on a human nature to live the perfect life that we could never live. Christ, who bore the full wrath of God. It was due to his people for their sin. If you're a follower of Christ, you've had the burning coal placed on your lips. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. If you're not a follower of Christ then you're still in your sin. The wrath and justice of God is upon you. I implore you to turn from your sin and to embrace Christ. Embrace Christ as your, not only your substitute, but also as your Savior and as your King, as the one seated on the throne.